Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Our guest this evening is entrepreneur Andrew Yang, and tonight we'll be getting to know Mr. Yang and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Andrew Yang was born in upstate New York and graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy here in New Hampshire in 1992. He studied economics and political science at Brown and went to law school at Columbia. Yang worked for a healthcare startup and ran a national education company. He then founded Venture for America, an organization helping entrepreneurs create jobs in cities like Baltimore, Detroit, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland. President Obama named him a presidential ambassador for global entrepreneurship in 2015. Yang believes that new technologies, including software, robots, and artificial intelligence, are eliminating jobs, and that the U.S. must act now to deal with the reality that Americans are at risk of permanent unemployment. One of his solutions? Implementing a universal basic income that would go to every American over the age of 18. Yang is married and has two children. Andrew Yang, thanks for joining us on Conversation with the Candidate. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Adam. So you're an entrepreneur at heart and a businessman. Most times when we see businessmen running for president, it tends to be at the end of their careers, and you're still relatively young. How would you transpose this entrepreneurship ideal that you embody into the White House? Well, the reason why I'm running for president is that I don't think we have that much time. And if you look at what's happening with new technologies around the corner, self-driving trucks are being tested in the Midwest right now. And driving a truck is the most common job in 29 states. My friends in Silicon Valley tell me that we are five to ten years away from robot trucks hitting the highways in earnest. So the reason I'm running for president right now is that unfortunately our government is years behind the curve and we need to catch up as fast as possible. How does this idea of a universal basic income work? Well, the way it works, and it's a very old idea, Thomas Paine was for it at the founding of the country, Martin Luther King, Milton Friedman uh, were for it in the 60s and 70s, and Alaska's had a dividend in effect for 37 years where everyone in the state gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. And that's the way the freedom dividend would work. Every adult starting at age 18 would get $1,000 a month free and clear to do whatever he or she wants. What do you say to those people who, who contend that this is somehow antithetical to the American ideal uh, of independence, that this would somehow foster a level of nationwide government dependence that would kind of shift things in a negative way? It's actually the exact opposite. And this is one reason why Milton Friedman, the leading conservative and libertarian economist, championed this idea. Because putting $1,000 into everyone's hands, the freedom dividend, would increase individual freedom and economic autonomy. It would also lead to hundreds of thousands of new jobs and businesses being formed here in New Hampshire and around the country. You write in your book, The War on Normal People, that there is a uh, geographic problem in this country. Uh, so much wealth and opportunity is being concentrated at the coasts and the interior of the country, rural America, is suffering. What can you do uh, beyond the universal basic income to reverse that trend, which seems to be beyond you know, touching or fixing at this point? Yeah, and, and that's really why I'm running for president, Adam, because if you look around us, 30% of Main Street stores, particularly in rural areas, are closing because Amazon is sucking up $20 billion in commerce every year. And so looking into it, the freedom dividend is the most effective and powerful way we can get resources into the hands of rural Americans in northern New Hampshire and around the country. 
these ideas have brought you a lot of attention, and deservedly so, because uh, they're bold. Uh, but once you get past that point, how do you begin to compete with uh, the more politically experienced people uh, in this race, uh, your, your Bernie Sanders's, your Kamala Harris's of the world? Well, I'm very happy to say that my campaigns raised almost half a million dollars in the last two weeks alone from tens of thousands of Americans around the country who've woken up to the reality that we are a democracy and there's nothing stopping us from declaring a dividend that would benefit families and children uh, and people right here in New Hampshire in their day-to-day -day working lives. Do you have any role models in politics? Yeah, since you're just getting into it, you've been in business this whole time, who do you follow as a role model? Well, as you know, I was an appointee in the Obama administration. Um, but I'm the, the godfather to Teddy Roosevelt's great-great-granddaughter. And Teddy Roosevelt was a big political hero of mine, uh, even, before, <laughs> even before my friend reached out and asked me to, um, to take on that, uh, that role. Uh, I think Teddy Roosevelt, uh, his attitude of just trying to get things done and, and not um, regarding partisanship as his primary uh, guidepost is really admirable. Speak softly and carry a big stick. Uh, one thing, you know, I think not a lot of people talk about this, but your candidacy is historic. Uh, you're the first Asian American man to run for president, uh, and you don't make a big deal of this, but uh, what does it mean to you to be able to break down that barrier? You know, as you say, I mean, my race is not central to my candidacy at all, uh, but I will say that I believe in 2019 and 2020, a candidate who understands how technology is transforming our way of life is going to be very important. And most of our candidates, no knock on them, but they don't understand technology in the same way that I do. And uh, I think that is tied in with my experience and what I've done throughout my career. Okay, Andrew Yang, we're gonna dig deeper into the policy soon here. Thanks for talking on set. And coming up after the break, we'll be going to our studio audience and bringing them into this conversation. Stay with us. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and tonight's guest, entrepreneur Andrew Yang. We're going to move to the town hall portion of our format now, and I'll jump in with some follow-up questions if necessary, but we want the voters to ask the questions here, and we're going to begin with Nancy Lassart. Nancy. Mr. Yang, in light of the divisiveness in Washington, how do you plan to work more cooperatively across the aisle and restore some civility to government? And please give us some practical examples. Well, the, the first thing is, as a serial entrepreneur, I built uh, both a, a national nonprofit uh, and a company that became number one in the country. And so it's all about building teams. You have to get people together and you have to figure out what, what we can agree on and what we can get done. So I'm very, very bipartisan and non-ideological. I'm deeply practical. And if there are good ideas from across the aisle that we can integrate into our policy, then that's where we're going to go. And people who've dealt with me know this, where already I'm getting many independents and conservatives and Republicans excited about my platform because I'm about just solving problems and getting the job done. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Our next question is from Keenan Pauly. <clears throat> Thank you both. And Mr. Yang, uh, what are your parameters for using executive orders? Well, I think, unfortunately, the use of executive orders has risen in part because Congress has become dysfunctional and the two branches haven't been able to agree on, on things. So one thing I've already said I'd do is I would push the authorization for military action back to Congress where it belongs in the Constitution. I don't think the president should be making those sorts of unilateral actions. And executive orders generally, the hope is that you can get Congress galvanized and able to agree on legislation because that's a much, much better way to go than the president simply implementing executive orders. Thank you, Keenan. And now, Ron Janowitz. 
Hello, Mr. Yang. Do you support the Green New Deal as a solution to climate change and economic inequality? And if successful, wouldn't the jobs created minimize the need for universal basic income? So I'm a big fan of the Green New Deal in terms of its vision. Uh, we need to start addressing climate change in a meaningful way. It's an existential threat. I'm a parent. I have two young children. I do not want to leave them a shambles of a climate and a planet uh, to grow up in. Uh, so the Green New Deal, big fan. Uh, I do think that the infrastructure jobs that be created are going to be immense and vital and important. Um, but the two phenomenon you're describing are somewhat unrelated, where even if we create new infrastructure jobs, if artificial intelligence replaces call center workers and retail workers and truck drivers, there'll still be needs on both sides. And Andrew, I'll follow up on this one if you don't mind. Uh, you talk a lot about automation, uh, yes. essentially robots. Uh, how do you get past, you know, some people, you know, you hear that and you kind of chuckle, oh, is that, is that for real? The robot guy, yeah, how do you the Asian get, robot guy, I well, know. How do you get past the, the sort of the sci-fi aspect of this where people, um, there's a level of disbelief? Well, what I tell people is, look, it's not like robots are going to start marching down the streets of Manchester anytime soon. But stores are closing around the state and the stores are closing because of Amazon. And if you go to the Amazon Fulfillment Center, then you'll see robots wall to wall. So you have to understand how the economy fits together. It's the same thing with truck drivers and call center workers and the rest of it. It's not like a robot will walk in and start picking up the phone. But what's going to happen is software is going to reach a point where it can uh, fulfill a customer service function in a way that's indistinguishable from a human being in the next several years. And that's going to be very, very bad for many, many workers. And how do you keep artificial intelligence uh, inbounds, I guess, from achieving ill-gotten ends? So artificial general intelligence is years, maybe decades away. So that's the science fiction. I'm, like, I can think like a human. Um, what AI is right now is it's going to be very, very sophisticated at accomplishing certain tasks and incredibly limited and stupid at everything else. So if you think about picking up a customer service call, you can have thousands of interactions and phrases at the ready and not be able to do anything else. And that's really where AI is going to be for the next number of years. It's going to do a number on many, many workers, but it's not going to be able to, for example, um, you know, do things anywhere that would be in the science fiction zone, uh, you know, uh, like taking over our, our society or any of that stuff. All right. We'll keep that on the horizon. Uh, Tracy Ann Tolan now. Um, let's see. Uh, good, good day. And what improvements could you uh, make at the border for border security to prevent undocumented immigrants from crossing, as well as illegal cargo on trucks and ships. Yeah, so you said trucks and ships, and, and that's right. What we have to do is we have to do the things we know we need to do better, uh, which is secure our ports, have adequate staffing and personnel at the border. Uh, the wall is not a solution. If you look at the actual configuration of the border, there, there are a lot of places where building a wall would be completely impractical, and all you're going to do is channel resources to other parts of the border. So I looked into this. I looked into whether there was some technological solution one could implement, and there is not. What we have to do is we have to adequately staff and secure the border and put more resources to work uh, so that there's no silver bullet where the southern border is concerned. Sorry, Joan, I got your name wrong there. Joan Krimlitz. Uh, and the social media question is from Tracy Antolin. This one came to us uh, via Facebook. Does your proposal to give everyone in America $1,000 a month do away with welfare assistance, no food stamps, no Medicare, that way everyone is on a level playing field? Well, we have a, about 126 welfare programs in this country right now. 
And I do not want to take those away from Americans because if you are relying upon programs for your survival and your way of life and feeding your family, the last thing you want to do is pull the rug out from under people. So what we're going to do is we're going to offer this $1,000 a month freedom dividend that's opt-in. But if you opt-in, then you're foregoing benefits from some of these other programs. Now, many people would prefer $1,000 unconditional cash with no monitoring and no, uh, no paperwork and all that stuff to their current program. So we're going to lighten the bureaucracy in those 126 programs, but we're not going to take anything away from someone if they think that their current benefits are superior to $1,000 cash. Okay, next question from the audience. Leonard Morrill. Thank you for coming, first of all. My question is, if you're from Medicare for All, how much do you think it would cost and how would you pay for it? Yes. So I've been a CEO and business person and one of the biggest misconceptions around Medicare for All is that we don't have the money. We're spending 18% of GDP on our healthcare right now, twice as much as other industrialized countries, to worse results. And there is incredible levels of excess in the system, and we all know this, where we all know that a lot of these uh, procedures should not be as expensive, a lot of the drugs should not be as expensive. And so what we need to do is we need to go to businesses and families and say, hey, great news, the money you're currently spending on health insurance, we're gonna take that off your plate, but we're gonna take some of that money for this transitional period. And the money is very, very much there. And as a CEO, I can tell you, I would love to, be help, to give that money to the government to help get that insurance off of my books because it's not just the money, it also keeps you from hiring, it keeps you from uh, treating people as full-time employees the way that you should. Uh, and so there's tons of money in the system and that's one of the big misconceptions about Medicare for All. It will actually save us money because if you have a robust public option, you can get the rates for all these procedures and drugs much, much lower very quickly. Mr. Yang, how does Medicare for All work uh, by age group? W would you have a sliding scale in any way? Because I mean, certain people need health care more at certain times of their lives. Is there anything in terms of access that would change depending on how old you are? Yeah, so the easy way to implement Medicare for All is just to lower the eligibility age over time. Um, and, and that's something that we would build in. Um, we need to have a robust public option for people at every age. And the robust public option, the more people you have in it, the more effectively you can negotiate rates lower. And frankly, having young, healthy people in that pool is actually very helpful for that purpose. Next question comes from Beth Morris. Thank you very much uh, for this opportunity. Um, I'm wondering what your primary motivation for running for Office of President and um, how it will help our country. Sure. So I'm running for president because we are in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of our country. Where Donald Trump is our president today because we automated away four million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa. This happened in New Hampshire, but it just happened decades earlier. What happened to New Hampshire in the early part of the 20th century is now happening to other parts of the country. And we're not being honest about the fact that what happened to the manufacturing workers will now happen to the retail workers, the call center workers, the fast food workers, the truck drivers, which are unfortunately the four most common jobs in the economy. So I'm running for president to wake America up to the fact that it is not immigrants that are causing economic issues around the country. It is the fact that our economy has changed in fundamental ways. And if we can understand that as a country and come together around meaningful solutions like the freedom dividend, then my run for the presidency will help move our society forward. How, how did you decide that running for president would be the way to do that? Obviously, you go big or go home, right? But I mean, you decided here I'm going to go from entrepreneur to the White House. 
Well, again, if you have five to 10 years before the robot trucks hit, uh, only 13% of truckers are unionized, so there's no negotiation to be had. And many of these truckers own their own trucks or have these little mom and pop shops. And so imagine being a trucker um, and seeing this robot truck that never stops, goes by, and you still owe tens of thousand dollars. We're five to 10 years away from that. So if you look at realistic ways to try and advance solutions, running for president was the only thing I found that had an actual chance of solving the problem. Anything else I did would be pretending to solve the problem. If I wrote a book and a white paper and just tried to whisper in people's ears, we're unfortunately way past that point as a society. We need to, actually, we need to push our government to get with the program and actually start solving these problems because these problems have been building up for years and decades. And what skills do you bring to the table in terms of convincing Congress to be able to act on the agenda you would want to pass? You know, I'm friends with many uh, Congress people and senators, and uh, the best of them just want to get things done. Um, so if I become president in 2021, the Democrats and progressives will be very excited about this dividend because it's going to put more money into the hands of families, it's going to make children stronger, it's going to improve graduation rates and mental health and physical health. And then Republicans are going to like it because it increases economic freedom and autonomy, and it's a wealth transfer from certain coastal areas to rural states and states in the interior. So we can get things done by galvanizing the American people around real solutions that will improve people's lives. Let's get to another social media question here. This one comes from Chuck Jetty. Uh, he asks, uh, what is your opinion of term limits for all congressional positions? Uh, okay, so first, we need to have term limits for Supreme Court justices yesterday. <laughs> Lifetime appointments might have made sense at one point, but they make no sense now. The fact that we have to, to get worried if an 80-year-old an justice has a health problem, I mean, that's no way to run a country. Um, so term limits for Supreme Court justices, both parties should be able to agree on that. Now, term limits for Congress people, I like. Um, but the, the fact is, if you had constant turnover in the Congress, then there'd be very little institutional knowledge. It'd be hard for new Congress people to organize all the time, and it might be harder to get things done. So if you're going to create term limits in Congress, uh, you would want to make it a little bit longer in time, so at least there's some seniority that builds up. But I do think having people crouching in D.C. for decades uh, is probably not good for our, our society. Next question comes from the town hall member, Jennifer Cunha. Uh, the opioid crisis has hit New Hampshire especially hard, and for the most part, children have been left out of the conversation. More and more school district, child care centers, and families are struggling to meet the growing unique needs of the growing number of children who are born with neonatal abstinence syndrome or have experienced trauma. And I'm curious your strategies and thoughts about how to address this issue. Uh, first, let me say I think that uh, what's happened in New Hampshire and around the country with the opiate epidemic is obscene. Uh, it's, and it's negligence on the part of the federal government because the federal government turned a blind eye while Purdue Pharma dispensed hundreds of thousands of OxyContin prescriptions saying this is non-addictive. And then that, uh, that set of prescriptions has now morphed into heroin and fentanyl and it's killed people. Eight Americans die of overdoses every hour now. And this is a crisis, but it's a crisis that the federal government was in, in part to blame for. So the first thing I would do is I would go to Purdue Pharma and I'd say, hey, you made $15 billion on the backs of the American people. It's blood money. We're going to get that money back and we're going to fund treatment. And then the federal government's going to say it is our fault in part that this happened and we're going to channel all the resources that you need to at least give these kids and people in your families and communities a fighting chance. Because this is not a money problem, this is a human problem. But money should not be the obstacle, and if I'm president, it will not be. 
Thank you, Jennifer. Next question comes from Aaron Fowler. Um, I come from a military family, and I was raised to protect the weak among us. When our hearts stop beating, we're pronounced dead. But when our hearts start beating, we're not pronounced alive. What would you do to say or change this? Um, could you reframe the question? Because that, that, sound, that sounded like, uh, like something. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, please, uh, if you could reframe it. Uh, well, when our hearts stop beating, we're pronounced dead. But when they don't start beating, we're not pronounced alive. What would you do to say or change this? It's about late-term abortion. Uh, and this is tied, late-term abortion, it's tied to military service? Well, I, I, talking about how I come from a military family, I was raised to protect the weak among us. Unborn children are weak, we need to try to protect their lives. Thank you, uh, thank you for the explanation. Um, so I'm of the opinion that it should be up to women to decide reproductive rights and that men should not, men should just leave the room. And I have a feeling I know how women would decide uh, on reproductive issues. Um, and so, to me, it would be an issue that women should decide for themselves. Uh, I mean, in an ideal world, every unborn child would be coming into a society that's welcoming them with open arms. And I would suggest that one way to make this more of a reality would be to put $1,000 a month in the hands of every American adult so that if you are pregnant, then you have the resources available to care for that child. Aaron, thank you. We have another social media question here, this one coming from Brian Whitaker. He asks on the potential increase of outsourcing from tech companies in regards to your proposed way to fund universal basic income, would that have any effect on implementation? That is the outsourcing versus the UBI. Well, uh, it's harder and harder for Americans to compete with people in other parts of the world because with advanced technologies, you can get a college graduate in India um, or China to work for $6 an hour. Um, something that a college graduate in the U.S. would not be able to compete with. And that's happening more and more. And as you push those tasks abroad, you then actually find ways to automate them. Um, so that's the progression. It goes outsource and then automation. And I had a friend who just came back from Asia, and it turns out that they're automating away the labor there too. Uh, and so this is not just an American phenomenon. Uh, this is worldwide. So outsourcing to me is something that uh, is inevitable. You can't necessarily try and regulate it out of existence. But if there are economic benefits, then we should share in it. Like if companies are making more money from outsourcing what used to be American jobs, that would be acceptable if Americans were sharing in the value. And that's what I'm going to make happen as president. Is there any other part of the world that has used universal basic income in a way that can show that it works? Well, you don't even need to look at other parts of the world. Again, this has been in effect in Alaska for 37 years, which is a deeply conservative state. And in that state, it's already created thousands of jobs, improved children's health, decreased income inequality, and it's wildly popular. It was implemented by a Republican governor. And we paid for that with oil money. And what I'm saying to the American people is that technology is the oil of the 21st century, and what we're doing in Alaska for Alaskans, we can do for all Americans. Next question comes from Olivia Zink. I'm deeply concerned about the way our campaigns are funded. Um, big money donors and lobbyists have way too much influence on the way laws are made um, and policies are created. Um, would you support campaign finance at a federal level? And if so, what types of, sy of system would you propose uh, to return our government to the people? I love this question so much, and it is messed up how broken our, our way of financing elections is. And so I will say that I've raised hundreds of thousands from Americans around the country, and our average online donation is only $19. So my fans are even cheaper than Bernie's. <laughs> and that's the way it should be, ideally, but here's how we fix it. 
So uh, I would overturn Citizens United and try and get corporate money out of politics, but that's still not going to be enough. So here's how we really fix it. As president, I will put 100 democracy dollars in the hands of every American adult that you can only give to a political candidate or campaign, and if you don't use it that year, then it disappears. So it's use it or lose it. And this, by the numbers, would enable us to wash out all the corporate money. Because then if I get 10,000 real human beings behind me, that's a million dollars. It's not that I go to the people and then I have to run someplace else for the money. And as a human being, I hate calling rich people for money. If there's something that I can do to stop that. And if you get a Congress together and say, why are we all doing something we all hate? It's insane. It's bad for our country. So we, we pass this democracy dollars bill and it's a huge win for the American people and we can retake our democracy. So thank you for that question. How do you do winter? Outside? Inside? Either way, we've got fresh ideas. Served up hot or cold. You ready? If you're after winter adventures, packed with powder, or ones brewed fresh, looking for action, or a break from it, need a place to chill, or somewhere to warm up, make the season better. With New Hampshire Chronicle, get more out of winter. We've got 30 minutes, commercial free here, going to be able to get to all sorts of issues. So let's start out with our first question from Richard Savory. Hi, Missy Yang. Um, my dad and my family grew up as Kennedy Democrats. And nowadays, we look at all the candidates and we wonder, where have the Democrats gone? Because now all you see is a bunch of socialists that have infiltrated them. So where are the Democrats that are voting you know, for America and working for America? You know, uh, I, was, I was in Iowa with a trucker uh, named Dennis Bogaski, and he asked me a similar question. And he said, why is it that uh, it doesn't seem like the Democrats have been with the working class, people li like him? And that's his perception. Um, but I got the same uh, perception from union workers here in New Hampshire, where they said, like, where have, have the Democrats gone? And to me, the Democrats need to have the backs of the working people of this country. And if that happens again, then that's going to be transformative for the party. The fact that that has changed is to me the big missing piece. And we need to take that back uh, so that you feel like the Democrats have your back, sir. Why do you think that has changed though over the last few decades? Uh, I think that there has been this movement in the party to become this more urban party. Uh, and then the urban party has sort of adopted various cultural issues um, uh, as opposed to economic and uh, bread and butter issues. Uh, and uh, we, we also, I think the Democratic Party has become too trusting in institutions and not trusting enough of people. And so, uh, for example, if, if you were to talk to a Democrat about how to fix schools, it would be like, oh, let's like, you know, um, invest in technology for the schools, when really the best thing you could do is pay the teachers more and then put more money into the hands of the families and give the kids a chance to learn. Um, so unfortunately, the democratic solutions have been less and less compelling to people because people have lost confidence in this array of programs and the democrat solution is let's create a new program. Um, and, and what I'm suggesting is like, it's not about a new program. We just need to get resources into the hands of parents and families and teachers and schools. Uh, and that's going to be a better approach. And I think that's what the democratic party has been missing for a long time. Is not universal basic income though kind of socialism by other means? Um, uh, it's very much not. <laughs> it's, uh, it's capitalism where income doesn't start at zero. And we're at a point now as a country, we're up to $20 trillion in GDP. We're the richest and most advanced economy in the history of the world. But most people in New Hampshire and most people around the country are not experiencing that. 
78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. 57% can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. And so we need to start evolving the way our economy uh, distributes all this incredible bounty. Because I have been where the bounty is actually being concentrated. Um, and w there's, uh, there's so much value being created that we can easily do this for the American people. It would just make communities and families stronger very quickly. It would build a trickle-up economy from people, families, and communities up. And that's what we need. That's what the Democratic Party needs. Okay, next question from Caroline Kelly. Hi. Um, a lot of the conversation today has been about how technology is changing the workforce. So my question is, how do you plan to prepare Americans for the future workforce needs? Yes. So right now we are over-prescribing college. Um, and uh, the big missing piece is vocational, technical, and apprenticeship training from high school up. Right now, only 6% of American high school students are in technical or, or apprenticeship programs. In Germany, that percentage is 59%. And that gulf reflects millions of unfilled jobs that are going to be resistant to automation because it's very hard to automate air conditioning repair or plumbing or much line repair. It's easy to automate bookkeeping, accounting, uh, and a lot of the entry-level white-collar tasks, insurance, uh, uh, agent, actuary, um, and so we need to dramatically channel more of our resources towards technical and vocational trades that are going to be with us for a long time. They're good, solid jobs that people enjoy, and that's where we need to channel m many more Americans. Thank you, Caroline. Another social media question here, this one from Patrick Collis. He says, how about pay off the deficit, then mandate a balanced budget? What do you think of that? Well, uh, 40 out of 50 states have a balanced budget amendment. That's one reason why I'm running for president, is to be able to make these kind of moves you need the federal budget, the heft. Now, we are, again, the richest country in the history of the world, and we are also the global reserve currency. We can make moves on the, to benefit the American people, um, and that's what we should do. Um, now, running this massive deficit is not a good thing, and we should try and bring it down in various ways. But a balanced budget would be the wrong way to go for the federal government that's trying to solve problems for the American people, in, in my opinion. I would bring the deficit down. I'm concerned about the deficit, but a balanced budget would be uh, a, like uh, a goal that would probably do um, more uh, harm in the short run than good. So uh, to bring the deficit down, what would you cut? Well, uh, one of the things I would do is I would channel some of our military spending towards infrastructure. Um, because right now we're spending $750 billion that we know of on military defense, and a lot of that money is not going towards the true threats of today. The threats of the 21st century are, in some order, climate change, uh, cybersecurity, AI, loose nuclear materials, and having more and more aircraft carriers and, uh, and equipment doesn't necessarily protect us against that. The reality is right now China and Russia could probably shut down our power plants by hacking our infrastructure through various code that they've planted. So that's actually the danger of the 21st century. It's not that they're going to somehow parachute troops in or, or something along those lines. So we need to take the money we're spending on military defense and start channeling it towards something that would generate economic activity and also be very, very uh, needed for years to come because our infrastructure is falling apart. We're, we're living on investments from decades ago. Next question in the town hall format comes from Gail Taylor. Hi. Would you support overturning Citizens United? Very much so. That, that was the worst decision ever. Um, uh, so we need to overturn it. Unfortunately, you need a constitutional amendment to overturn it the way that uh, it's been set up, but that would very much be the goal. And then in addition to that, I'd pass those democracy dollars, which has the effect of 
uh, overrunning the corporate money that Citizens United unleashed on us. But I thought that was a, a bad decision when it was made, and that's been proven. I think just about every voter here probably is interested in the Supreme Court uh, and what happens in that branch of our government. If you're the President of the United States, uh, what are you looking for in a potential Supreme Court justice nominee? Well, I, I will say I think that um, Democrats generally like to uh, play fair and have respect for process. And what the Republicans did by sandbagging Merrick Garland in the last year of Obama's presidency to me was uh, unprecedented. Like there's nothing in the Constitution that says in the last year of our presidency you can't appoint a Supreme Court justice. And that ended up tipping the balance of the court in a very, very real way. So at this point you have to try and undo some of what has been done. Um, I'd be looking for a justice that has views that align with uh, the Democratic Party in terms of uh, moving society forward. And I think unfortunately that some of the justices that have been appointed recently are going to pull us the other way in terms of reproductive rights and other things. So you think it's time to take a more nakedly political approach then? You're gonna, you want to know what your justice believes before you put them up? I went to law school. I took constitutional law. I understand the legal backdrop of the Supreme Court. Um, but uh, we would, I would appoint a justice that is aligned with the values of the people that voted me into office. And one last question on that front. Sorry to take some time for you guys. But uh, the idea that so many of the members of the Supreme Court are from the same academic institutions uh, and the same background. Is it time to find justices with a more varied experience or education? And again, I want to affirm that literally they're picking justices based upon their youth so they'd stick around for more years. The whole thing is so uh, perverse. Um, so we need to move to 18-year terms. And then every president would have two appointments if you had nine justices. And that's like a steady system that we can all rely on. Um, so in terms of institutions, uh, sure, I think relying upon academic pedigree um, at this point, like if you look at our history, some of the best justices did not go to the same schools as, as, as we're pulling from right now. Okay, next question, Susan Ingram Kelly. Yes. Hello. In this time of what appears to be extremism in both parties, what would you suggest can be done to bring a spirit of compromise and civility back to the political process? So one of the things I've been saying to the American people is that we've been distracted by a lot of things and we need to focus on solutions and ways that we can actually improve people's lives. That's one reason why the freedom dividend, giving everyone $1,000 a month is the, the centerpiece of my plan because that's very bipartisan. It's not left or right, it's forward. Um, everyone from Martin Luther King to Milton Friedman to Richard Nixon was for it. So then after we do this, then the big hope is that we can reverse the mindset of scarcity that has overtaken our communities. One reason we're so polarized is that Americans are not doing well. If you can't pay your bills, it's much easier to become negative about uh, other types of people. So if we get the economic boot off of people's throats and reverse this mindset of scarcity, which has overtaken our country, uh, with, and replace it with a mindset of abundance and optimism and generosity, then hopefully we can bring the American people together around policies that we can all agree on. Thank you, Susan. And I'm curious, too, what do you do when you get that blast of negativity on social media? So you tweet something about policy, and then whether it's uh, bots or real people coming at you, how do you deal with that wave of negativity? Um, well, in my case, uh, any negativity is a good thing um, just because it means that people are digging into the proposals uh, that I have for the economy and the American people. Um, so, uh, and I, I'm the sort, I don't know if you can tell, uh, but I'm not the sort that expects everyone to agree with me. You know, like if people come to me with quality arguments and facts, I'm very, very open to considering them. Now, if they're just spouting things that are not factual, and it just seems like, you know, hostility for the sake of hostility, then it's very easy just to put aside and ignore anyway. I'm going to do another but, so I, but I will say, 
I have to say, like, I'm not getting much hostility at all. Like, the, the love outweighs the hostility is something like 100 to 1. If you go on my social media following, you'll see what I mean. Um, but again, we've raised half a million dollars from everyday Americans in the last, you know, two weeks. Um, so there's a lot of enthusiasm for this vision of the economy. And the negativity, uh, frankly, I haven't seen much of it. We're going to do another social media question here. Cat and, and I've been on Fox four <laughs> times. <laughs> Five. I can't even keep track. Kat McAfee um, asks, uh, should the government require the NCAA to pay athletes? hundred percent, yes. Oh my gosh. If you go to my website, yang2020.com, you'll see I have 76 policies, like ban robocalling, get a psychologist in the White House, forgive student loans, and pay NCAA athletes, because it is wrong to exploit young people that are making millions of dollars for an institution. Meanwhile, you're paying the athletic director and the coach hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. What kind of message is that for our young people? That it's okay for us to exploit young people for their gifts that are taking risks for their bodies? Um, so NCAA should 100% pay revenue-generating athletes. At a minimum, they should be able to sign memorabilia and get their fair share of merchandise and their likeness and everything else. So the revenue-generating athletes, not necessarily... If I'm on the club soccer team or something like that. Uh, were you on the club <laughs> soccer team? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just wondering. Guys. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd be revenue generating <laughs> athletes. Um, because, you know, because uh, if, if you're playing in like a giant sold out um, arena and then people are paying lots of money and then, and then the, the school's making tons of money, it doesn't make sense for the students just to, to be like scraping by. And that would be on top of the UBI as well. Yeah, it would. Because if you're getting this universal-based income, and if you have children, um, you know, it's like, why is school so expensive now? You know, like, like, why are you looking up being like, how the heck did that happen? So I'm going to try and bring those costs down by tying the cost ratio to federal uh, loan access. Um, but also, putting $1,000 a month into your hands and the hands of your children will make a huge difference for paying for school. So if someone shows up to college, they'd be getting this universal basic income. Most of that would be going to tuition. But certainly, if they're a revenue-generating athlete, um, they should be getting compensated. Okay, uh, let's migrate back to the middle here. We somehow ended up in the corner. I'm cornering. Uh, I got him. Um, let's go to Clara Monier for a question. Yes. Oh, I'll move closer to you. <laughs> okay. Good morning, Mr. Wang. Thank you for bringing your interesting proposals to us here in New Hampshire. I am uh, interested in what your proposals are for the Social Security system. It has been predicted to be uh, minus 25% in 2035. And if some changes are made now, maybe the crisis could be averted. And listening to your ideas would be very interesting. Yes. So uh, Social Security is scheduled to go bankrupt in uh, a number of years. But the truth is Social Security's bankruptcy is essentially an accounting fiction. Um, it's because the way they set it up is that you put money aside and then you get back your money. Um, but the truth is the money you've been putting in has been going to other things and then new money is going to come in. And the way Social Security gets financed through your work, if you were a mother and didn't build up a work history, then your Social Security benefits are lower. Um, and so that's the, like part of the way the system is set up. So I would dramatically strengthen and revamp the Social Security system. You would have no fear of it going bankrupt ever again because we have to decide what kind of country we're going to be. We all know millions of Americans don't have adequate retirement savings. And we are now heading into an era where we're going to see elderly Americans working at convenience stores until the day they die and dying on the streets. Or we're going to get our acts together and say we're a moral country. And if you are a citizen uh, of this country and you're uh, past a certain age, you should be getting enough to, so you can live in a dignified and quality retirement. And again, $1,000 a month would go a very long way for Americans the entire way up. 
But Social Security, uh, the entire bankruptcy of Social Security is something that we can just come together and change if we decide to do so. Clara, thank I you. have parents too. Put it that way. I have parents too. <laughs> My parents are still alive, thank goodness. And so, you know, like having elderly Americans struggling to that degree is immoral. Uh, your website has uh, probably more policy positions than uh, most. Let's put it that way, to be fair. I think it was 75 to 100 or something. So. Yes, and there are some new ones coming. Oh, wow. Well. Uh, one of the interesting ones that caught my eye was this idea of uh, doing something about malls that have become defunct. Yes. Uh, can you explain what you'd like to do uh, with America's many emptying malls? Yes. So 30% of American malls are scheduled to close in the next five years. How many of you have been at a ghost mall or a mall that's emptying out? And it's freaky, right? It's scary. Like, you don't want to be there. It seems like a crime zone. And when those things go empty, they spread blight for miles around and depress property values. So as these malls close, it behooves us to try and find a creative use for them if we can. And it's happened in some parts of the country where they're getting used as churches, as community spaces, as offices, sometimes as residential. They're poorly designed for some of these things, but you can make moves in this direction. And so as president, I will pass the American Mall Act that will match funds so that if a community has a creative use for that mall, then they'll get uh, backing from the government to help make that transition. Because if you can revive that mall, it's a huge value savings for that community. If that mall goes dark, then the blight will spread. And, and we have to be honest that this is happening to almost a third of American malls in the next five years. Because of what? Amazon. That's right. The cardboard box industry is doing very well, though. Uh, you say you want to bring down uh, overdose and uh, numbers and opioid addiction uh, yes. by 20%. Uh, over a very short time period, just four years. Yep. How do you achieve that goal when we know that addiction is so tough to beat? So there's a, an American idea that you can't treat drugs with drugs, um, and it turns out that, at least in some countries, they have been providing non-addictive drug substitutes for opiates, and it has lowered overdoses and addiction rates. France, for example, lowered its heroin overdose rate by 79% over four years by making a non-addictive drug substitute freely available. So that's what we would do here in the U.S. Um, not just the entire Naxalone Narcan suite of, of overdose prevention, but actual substitutes to help people manage the addiction. Now, because th there is no right way to get off of drugs, like we have to make every tool available to people, and we certainly shouldn't leave anything off the table, including non-addictive drug substitutes. And one other thing that's on the website, and you mentioned that in here, is you want to have a psychologist in the White House. What role does this person play? Uh, it, obviously, it, there's a pretty clear one medically, but in terms of how the president would make decisions. Well, so my president's a psychology professor. Uh, and I'm sorry, my brother <laughs> is a psychology professor. My president is very much not. My president's sort of the opposite, unfortunately. Um, so my older brother's a psychology professor at NYU. Uh, and we know that people in government are under a lot of stress, making very important decisions, uh, and mental health is going to be sort of the last thing on people's minds. So if you get a mental health resource into the White House, one, it destigmatizes mental health issues around the country because we all have struggles, we'd all benefit from having some sorts of, of resources. But two, in real terms, um, the chief of staff with a mental health resource, if they notice someone is stressed out and struggling, they can say, hey, you should probably see that person. And then the person will be like, I don't need to see that person. And will be like, well, turns out, like, you know, we all have to see that person periodically. And so then if the psychologist then says, like, look, this particular person is struggling in a particular way, then you can start trying to make moves. Because w one of the things that you can't have is you can't have this sort of Superman, Superwoman culture where like everyone like pretends to be superhuman 
And then you wind up with uh, real problems and mistakes being made and decisions being made that shouldn't have been made. And certainly we see the president these days uh, aging in office quite a bit from George W. Bush to President Obama. And although President Trump has done a pretty good job of upkeep, I guess. That's because his hair's not real. No. <laughs> um, let's talk about gun violence. What are your plans to reduce gun violence in this country? Uh, I mean, it's a complicated problem. Um, so I think that guns should be treated similarly to automobiles, that we have uh, testing and licensing for automobiles because they can kill people. Firearms can also kill people, so we should, we should take their ownership very, very seriously. Um, that said, there are 300 million firearms in this country um, owned by citizens, and there's no realistic way that you can um, reduce that number dramatically in a short period of time. So a lot of the investment that we should make uh, is around things like mental health resources and uh, um, things to keep people stronger, particularly in the school environment. Because many, many schools, there's a troubled boy, and everyone kind of knows the boy is troubled, but then no one wants to raise the alarm about it. So um, again, my brother's a psychologist, and he knows that if you have adequate resources, then you can hopefully preempt some of these situations before they become dangerous. So what do you do, though, if you're working around the Second Amendment? Uh, and this is getting down to a lower level than perhaps the president is responsible for, but what do you do about that troubled boy? Well, the hope is that if people feel comfortable that there's a resource there uh, and that we listen to our children in that case, where the children says, hey, it seems like that boy um, is struggling. Um, first, we need to create a culture that acknowledges struggle. That it, it can't be that if, if someone says, like, look, you're struggling, that's somehow stigmatized and, and marks you in a negative way. And then second, that you have real resources at work to try and uh, intervene and, and improve and uh, support that young person, generally a young boy, because we know that young boys are much more likely to um, inflict uh, gun violence uh, on their peers than others. Let's jump back into the tech conversation. What do you think about net neutrality and why should that issue matter uh, to people who don't know what it is? Yes. So the simplest way to think about net neutrality is should big companies pay to have better uh, internet access than others? Um, if you think that's a bad idea, then you're for net neutrality. I'm for net neutrality. I think it, big companies have enough advantages without paying for faster internet access for their stuff. Um, so uh, I'm pro net neutrality. It's the least we can do. Even with net, neutra net neutrality, there are massive advantages for the biggest players. In terms of the regular person, though, why, why should they care about this issue? Well, for the regular person, um, the question is whether you want a level playing field online uh, for vendors, for people that are trying to reach you, for content providers. Um, and so naturally, if you were getting better speeds from certain providers, then you'd start using them more and it would consolidate more power in the hands of uh, the largest companies. Another social media question coming in, uh, this one from Andy. Uh, so this is a little pointed. He says, so I get a thousand bucks a month for busting my butt at work and somebody else gets a thousand bucks a month for not working. Am I understanding this correctly? Well, if you're busting your butt at work, presumably they're paying you for that. So you're getting a thousand dollars a month for being a citizen of the, the richest, most advanced country in the history of the world, and whatever your employer is paying you. So the incentives are perfectly aligned because you keep every dollar. And then the person who's not working is getting $1,000 a month, but then they're looking at you coming home from work and saying, wow, like you can do more. Um, maybe I should get myself a job. Um, so the biggest misconception about the freedom dividend is that it's somehow going to mitigate work. It's not. It's going to create tens of thousands of new jobs right here in New Hampshire and millions around the country. Because you know if you were getting an extra $12,000 a year, how much of that's going to be spent right here in your community? Most of it. Like tutoring, food for your kids, car repairs you've been putting off, 
the occasional night out, it stays here in New Hampshire. Some of it goes up to Jeff Bezos and the gang, a little bit. You know, you'll do some Amazoning. Um, but most of it stays right here. And that's going to be true for that gentleman's community as well. He's going to get the money from his job and the money from the dividend. We should point out that uh, you already are conducting your experiment here in New Hampshire. Uh, you have a family in Goffstown who's receiving $1,000 a month. And th the way you've done that is you're actually just paying them yourself to avoid any campaign finance issues. When you do that, uh, are you keeping track of what they do? Or are you just saying, here's the 1000 it's yours. Don't. I, I guess I'm trying to figure out if you're, tr you're trying to figure out if they're successful with that money. Um, it's very much the latter. I'm not even sure they've spent the first $2,000 um, that, that they've gotten. Uh, and if they don't, that's great. If they spend it on something uh, that um, makes their lives better, also great. Um, so it, it's the Fosse family in Goffstown, New Hampshire. Um, and I'm doing the same thing for a family in Iowa. And here's what's inspirational is that a couple in Georgia was so inspired by my, my campaign that they're now giving $1,000 a month to a family in South Carolina that they've never met. Um, because they know that that's the right thing to do. We can improve Americans' lives very, very quickly. Um, and so I'm not checking in on the Fosse's at all. Whatever they do is going to be great. Let's take uh, on an issue that is a hot-button one uh, here in New I Hampshire. I will say I kind of know where the money's going to go. It's going to go to Janelle's college tuition bills. I mean, truth. Like, you know, you've got a kid in college. We all know how crazy expensive that is. So that's where uh, the money is going, I'm sure. Let's talk about an issue very important in New Hampshire right now, the legalization of marijuana. We see the rest of the New England states moving in this direction. New Hampshire is still uh, in the thick of the debate. Where do you stand on legalization and also uh, medical marijuana? Um, I'm for the full legalization of marijuana and removing it from the federal controlled substance list. Uh, it's better for managing pain than, for example, opiates, less dangerous. Um, we still need to regulate it. You know, you can have something be legal and regulated, um, but to, to me, it's clear that our administration of the criminalization of it has not been equitable, and we should just legalize it fully. Let's talk a little bit about environmental policy. We haven't gotten to too much yet in this hour. Um, how would you plan to use all of your friends in tech, uh, all of this uh, AI, all of these great things that are happening, even automation, how do you apply that to the problem that we have of our persistent Superfund sites uh, here in New Hampshire that are uh, polluting drinking water, creating health problems? Yes, I wish there was a tech solution. Uh, there might be at the margins, uh, but we definitely need to do much, much more to police Superfund sites and generally tie corporate incentives to our air and water. Um, so right now the problem is that these companies are making a cost-benefit analysis and they're saying, well, if it pays to pollute, then that's what I'm going to do. So we have to make it much, much more costly for them to pollute with a carbon, uh, carbon fee and dividend system and then channel those resources towards uh, making it harder and harder for companies to cut corners. On climate change, uh, how do you plan to solve the problem in America while still allow the de developing the world to develop and making sure that they're not putting too much carbon in the atmosphere as well? So th this is the, the harsh truth about climate change and global emissions. The United States is only 15% of global emissions. So even if we were to go really extreme and cut our emissions significantly, it might cut global emissions by 5%. The four warmest years in history have been the last four years. Uh, we are at this point on the curve towards a warming planet. And it's not like if we all of a sudden start recycling diligently that uh, it, it's going to start cooling again. So this is something where technology will come into play. We need to start trying to first invest in our infrastructure to make us more resilient and sustainable. And you can see that around the country that uh, there are floods and natural disasters that are, um, that are uh, dangerous to people in part because our infrastructure is failing. Um, but then we need to try and invest in reversing some of the 
um, most severe effects. And so if we can somehow get carbon out of the atmosphere and find ways to sequester it, um, then, then that's the direction we should go in. And that's where technology can help. But we have to start being honest with ourselves about the fact that we are not the world. Like if, if we reduced our emissions, that would help, but it would not solve the problem entirely. We've got time for one last question here, and uh, we've exhausted the room, and so I'm filling in here. But um, let's talk about the voting process. I can't believe it. You want people to be able to vote on their smartphones. How do you prevent interference when uh, we know that uh, so many apps have already gained access to our phones? How do you prevent someone who wants to vote on their smartphone from having their vote interfered with? So um, you would not move towards smartphone voting until the technology was ready for prime time, which right now it is not. Um, but there are technologies that are on the table using something called the blockchain that you could trust intrinsically because it's something called a public ledger where, and, it's, uh, and you can't tamper with it. So everyone can see it and you can't tamper with it. And so then you could vote on your smartphone and you could enable a much more powerful democracy. Because right now, the other thing, I would make election day a national holiday. I mean, how, how is it not? Um, so we need to empower voters in different ways. But it does not make sense as a modern society that we can bank online and we can pay our parking tickets online, but then we have to stand in line and, uh, and pull levers on these machines that are not tamper-proof either. I mean, like, if you move towards a voting system that we can actually trust, that would be the win and that's the vision. But you don't make that move until the technology is ready. Mm. I think you're going to have a very fun conversation with Bill Gardner at some point. Uh, before we go. Uh, you went to Phillips Exeter Academy here in New Hampshire. Yes, I did. What is your fondest memory uh, of the Granite State, uh, having spent a formative part of your youth here? Um, uh, I learned to ski as a junior uh, in high school, and I'd never skied before. Um, and then there was like a ski trip at Exeter, and then I was like, I'm going to learn to ski. <laughs> so like I, I got on that, um, on that bus, and it was a painful day. <laughs> it was a very painful day. <laughs> Uh, but then I, you know, I was very proud of myself that I managed to catch up to my friends and like uh, go down the slopes by the end of the day. Um, I just spoke at my old high school two weeks ago, and I have to say it was a, it was a really heartwarming to be back. I still have friends here because um, many of my friends' parents uh, still live here. Well, you took your bruising on the ski trail. Hopefully, the campaign tra trail treats you a little bit more nicely. Yeah, yeah, Andrew Yang, it is. Thank you so much for participating in conversation with the candidate. Thank you so much to our wonderful studio audience and the town hall questions. We very much appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.